everybody. How's it going? Welcome to The Lab. This is 538's NBA podcast for May the 10th, 2018. My name's Neil Payne. I write about sports for 538. I will be your host as always. And I'm joined, as always, in studio by my fellow 538 sports writer, Kyle Wagner. Hey, Kyle. Hey, Neil. We're back. We are back, yes. Uh, uh, before we begin the show, a little programming note slash apology. Uh, we apologize for not having an early week episode this week. We ran into some logistic issues with people being out, including myself, but we are back. Uh, and I should say our other usual co-podcaster, Chris Herring, is still away, but he should be back very soon. In the meantime, today we're going to talk about the conference finals, breaking down the Western Conference matchup everyone wanted, including us, and the Eastern Conference rematch that nobody really thought we'd get. Uh, but first, Kyle, let's do some quick takes uh, since it's been a little while since we've sat here in the studio. Uh, all of these teams have gotten eliminated since uh, the last time we got together. Give me give me some of your quick thoughts on the teams that are going fishing, as they say, uh, over the summer. What can they do to get back and also what went wrong? Starting with, uh, let's start with Philly since they were the most recently eliminated. The Sixers were a team we were really high on. We did not expect them to lose, especially in five games uh, against the Boston Celtics. What happened there, Kyle? Well, one, the Celtics happened where the Celtics are just much better comprised than, than we thought they were. And, and we'll get to them uh, when we talk about the Eastern Conference finals matchup. Right. And we forget that like when we're talking about, oh, yeah, Embiid is very, very talented. Simmons is very talented. And like they seem to be ready or ready enough to beat the, the Heat. That's different from beating the Celtics where you're dealing with Son Whiteside who can you know not really deal with Embiid. And then all of a sudden you've got Al Horford. But yes, like Embiid uh, has a stat where he was 0 for 2 in that last game with uh, with shots that were game tying or go ahead in the final minute. He was 0 for 8 on the season with those, and that's apparently the worst ever according to ESPN stats and info. And uh, the worst ever without making a shot, I right, should right. say. There's something going on with Embiid's offense that we've seen happen where. Where when he's in the mode of he needs to score in this possession, he needs to walk through his defender as he has all series, he's susceptible to just like being dug in on from the perimeter for from the double team coming, and he can't really pass out of double teams. He can't really pass out of single teams yet, and or at least he doesn't often. And like obviously with Simmons, uh, we saw where he spent a large portion of this series just not knowing what to do when the defense runs away from him, which is the question we had in the Miami series that he adapted to a lot better a lot less so in this series. Yeah, it does seem like this is, you could frame it as maybe the growing pains of a young team making their playoff debut. It just kind of happened a little bit later into the playoffs than maybe we thought it would happen. Uh, but then with Simmons, it also does seem like there might be a little bit of a blueprint for how teams might try to uh, reduce his effectiveness in his second year going forward and some things that he needs to kind of develop a counterattack against. Yeah, it seemed like every time you went to the bench is when the Sixers would be making their runs and really their big runs happened like sometimes when he was on the bench but also when the Celtics just for whatever reason put in just really inept offensive units where every possession for the Celtics would be a miss or a turnover and that like got Philly into transition where like they were a little more dangerous and they didn't have to you know go through that half court offense that was really really in trouble when when Simmons was just getting stoned. Okay, let's move on, uh, stay in the East, and talk about the Toronto Raptors. Uh, the internet and the Twitter sphere has had some time to thoroughly dissect and just kind of excoriate this team for the way that they didn't really show up against the Cavaliers. Uh, very disappointing, obviously, for a Toronto team 
that thought that with their change in, in play style and the breakthrough that they made, winning almost 60 games during the regular season, getting home court, being the number one seed, that this would be the year everything would fall into place and it would be different from those previous years. And it ended up being just this nightmare replay uh, of all of LeBron's greatest hits against the Raptors. Where does this team go? Do they can they possibly in good conscience bring back this same core and kind of run it back and try again knowing that pretty much is it inevitable that this group I guess is what I'm trying to ask that this group as currently constructed will lose and fall short and therefore something needs to be done or is there some path forward with the group that they have now it's hard to see a path forward especially with their salary structure because Kyle Lowry is going to be making 31, 32, 33 million over the next two years. And we should say he played actually pretty well in this series, at least, uh, you know, as well as anyone on Toronto did. Right. But it's hard where he's not going to be your best player in a way that he's creating surplus the way that the best max players do. And at 33 million, that's hard to build around. DeMar DeRozan is in for another three seasons after this season at like close to 30 million. And I and, feel really bad for him, um, especially being benched late in uh, a couple of those games and just sort of watching the team actually come back and play better with him on the bench. And it just seemed like, I don't know, this was sort of a referendum on him as a star being able to carry a team deep into the playoffs. And if it was, the answer is he doesn't seem to have that level. Right. DeMar uh, was benched uh, for the entire fourth quarter, I think, in Game 3. The end of Game 3 is when that series looked most in contest. And, like, really, once you lose Game 3, like, you're down 0-3. Like, that series is over. And they packed it in, I think, at that point. Yeah. But also, like, just the things that we talked about with DeMar all season are things that did not stick, which, you know, the three-pointer. He did not make a three-point shot in this series. He didn't make one in the final game of the Washington series. And he had a couple games in that series where he only hit one. He was, like, 1-3, 1-4. There are elements of that game that are useful. Like, he is still, like good in the mid-range he's still going to be able to take his man off the dribble but yeah like when we're talking about a dude who like traditionally has just been a non-factor from three and like all of a sudden he's shooting what 31 32 percent this season um and that was higher over you know some splits than others but but yeah like 31 32 percent will actually get you respect uh as we've seen from from Giannis, from from a few other players who like don't have a reliable three point shot, but have a respectable enough one that you have to like treat it as though it's a weapon. If Demar's just going o for or in one of these games o for o from three, then like you don't have to respect that at all. You don't have to pay attention to it. And the other thing with Toronto was that we have to talk about that we talked about all season uh, as they were winning games during the regular season was that their bench was so effective that it was sort of the secret weapon. Uh, especially they at one point they had the best five-man lineup in the entire NBA, and it was their second unit. And their bench really was a non-factor at best during the playoffs, especially against the Cavs. And I think that's also a way in which this team almost seemed like a textbook case. Obviously, it's easy to look back in hindsight, uh, but it was a textbook case of a team sort of figuring out the way to win during the regular season and then not really being able to rely on the pillars that built your number one seed standing uh, during the regular season once you got to the postseason. Right. The, the closest they have for 
for like this isn't a bench player, but OG Ananobi uh, had a had a nice series against LeBron. He could do some things as much as you know you're expecting any you know young player to do against LeBron. Right, and he's not even 21 years old yet. Right, and they have another season with him. But here's the thing: they have another season with almost everyone. So if you're looking at quick turnaround, they still have Valanciunas, they still have CJ Miles on the books, they still have Norman Powell, who they have refused to trade for years and years, and now have on the hook for about 10 million, give or take, for the next four seasons after this. Yikes. Uh, they have really no one coming off the books except, like, Lucas Nguera, I think. He, I, he might have a player option. Uh, and uh, Fred Van Vliet, who is the, uh, played the best of all those right. all those bench players, uh, aside from, you know, missing a late shot that, you know, would have... Uh, whatever. And so, yeah, they don't have much room at all. They're, they're capped out in a way that, like, we don't realize because that Serge Ibaka deal is so big. <laughs> Yeah, it sounds like in some ways they have no choice but to run it back, given the group that they have. Uh, and the Van Vliet thing is going to be really interesting as to whether you know you kind of commit to even more money and and kind of double down on the construction of a team that maybe you're waiting for LeBron to or praying that LeBron goes to the West or something like that. Maybe that's like the the best path forward for Toronto. But it does seem like you know as long as LeBron is standing in their way, it's it's a really tough hill to climb. Yeah, they can tinker at the margins. But it's really hard to see how they would add another significant kind of star level, all star level player to this roster. It's 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 really hard to see. Okay, let's talk about the Pelicans. Uh, they lost to the Warriors in five games. Uh, at times, they looked a little competitive, uh, especially early in that series. But uh, especially once Steph Curry came back for the Warriors, it didn't seem really like much of a contest. These are the Warriors, and we'll talk about them in a little bit. Uh, what what do the Pelicans do? Obviously. Boogie Cousins is the big person that sort of hangs over their offseason, and we've talked about him and the prospect of them bringing him back and kind of reigniting that pairing with Anthony Davis. But it also seems like maybe they learned a little bit about who else they have. Uh, Drew Holiday acquitted himself pretty well in the playoffs. Um, you know, Rondo is always interesting. Miritich was kind of a good pickup for them. Uh, what's the future hold for this team? Right. This is a team where uh, they are going to have to, like, so the big thing with them is their flexibility, obviously. Just- and they're not; they don't have much cap flexibility, even if they don't pick up Cousins. So yeah, you may as well go, um, you know, try their best to get him. But yeah, Drew is getting paid a lot of money over the next uh, the next three four seasons, and so it was nice to see him have a good series. But you also learn like kind of the limitations of uh, paying a whatever six three six four guard like that. Because when he would have to switch onto Durant, when he would have to kind of go do the things that you're going to have to do in the Western Conference, like Durant was just shooting over that entire team. It was H- he was shooting over Etwan Moore. He was shooting over like everyone else also. But Drew was one of the best players on that on the court for them, and he couldn't really do anything as like Kevin Durant just trucked them. But theoretically, being able to sort of use Davis in more of a of a role where he patrols around and prevents uh, you know people like Durant from being able to rise up over people because you have. Bo- also in the front court could help them you know be be more of what they're supposed to be or what they could be on paper going forward right and so that's the the role he played while boogie was playing center for most of the season for when you know when boogie was in uh cousins had by far the most shots defended and kind of an average uh which is pretty good when you're defending that many shots an average uh, uh shots against uh, kind of rating, uh, where he was depressing the value of, uh, of shots at, like, at an average rate, which is good. And then cousin, or then Davis was going around the rest of the floor, just erasing everything. And that seems like the best role for him, given his wingspan and just, you know, athleticism. 
Well, and longevity, if you're looking for that, because once Cousins went out, Davis went down to the five and proceeded to spend the rest of the season playing that boogie role, getting to all the shots, and also mostly erasing them, lost lost very little off of uh, his uh, kind of value depression. But yes, if we're talking about like if they can add anyone, like really they can just add Cousins, which uh, we have uh, about a half season worth of data and... It worked. It didn't work as well as, you know, Davis just going nuclear. But I still kind of think that uh, that the boogie thing can work for them. I uh, also think that he's a very attractive sign-and-trade for, for a couple other teams. But uh, we'll, I'm sure we'll get to that in other episodes. Okay, final team to talk about the Utah Jazz. They lost in five games, but they were relatively hard-fought games uh, against the Houston Rockets, the number one seed. Uh, and this was really all about Donovan Mitchell, his his kind of coming out party as a star during these playoffs. Uh, he's only 21 years old, uh, still a rookie, true rookie if you asked him, uh, in comparison with someone like Ben Simmons. Uh, but this Utah team, we, we saw them play extremely well down the stretch of the regular season, and they carried that over for a lot of the playoffs, ran into this Houston buzzsaw. We'll talk about the Rockets later in the show. But this seems like a very promising up-and-coming team that, that can only do more going forward. They can do as much as their star development is going to allow them to do. Uh, they, they obviously looked d- different with Ricky Rubio out of there. They uh, they look different when, you know, Jay Crowder is hitting shots that, you know, you expect Jay Crowder to hit, but like he hadn't been hitting them all season. Certainly not in Cleveland. Right. And so, yeah, but really it's when Donovan Mitchell is having a relatively efficient game because uh, he's a young dude and like he's obviously he's dynamic. He, he ran the offense extremely well while Rubio was out at first and then it was solved and it went back to um, until that final game where he also got hurt. Uh, he was just kind of an inefficient uh, volume scorer, and we've seen teams do well or well enough to, like to get into the playoffs uh, kind of perennially like that. But we haven't really seen a team like a championship level team built around that uh, long term. I'm um, on the record. I think that like the like quote unquote volume score is actually a really important role on a team. But if that's like the thing that you're building around, then you really need to be sure that everyone else uh, has a lot of just kind of packaged skills where you you have players that can do a lot of things uh, at once. And that's that's what's being freed up uh, by having a lot of your scoring you know, kind of bundled into one player. Yeah. And we should say that we've seen, you know, players like Mitchell in the past who at a young age take on a huge amount of usage and they're efficiency in that usage is not always consistent it's not always super high but that does seem to be a marker of potential to you know the usage comes first but then maybe the efficiency fills in later and then you have a star right um that that's the always the thing with uh with turnover rating especially if you have a lot of turnovers as uh, as a young player if you have a lot of usage uh even if it's not uh great usage great uh if, even if the turnovers are bad uh then that's something that you're just going to grow into Okay, let's leave the teams eliminated there and move on to talk about the teams that are actually still playing. And let's just start by diving in on the series out west, the Houston Rockets and the Golden State Warriors. We've been talking up this potential matchup for months, and it is finally happening. Kyle, is this basically the de facto NBA Finals? I mean, so... Hot take, hot take alert. 
Yes, but uh, we both uh, have gotten our hand caught in the cookie jar with these calves. Like, I have no yeah, idea the calves, with them. Yeah, the calves are definitely uh, a complicating factor here. But we should say that Golden State and Houston were the two best teams in the NBA during the regular season, according to NBA Advanced Stats net efficiency rating. And particularly, they have finished first and second in offensive rating, each averaged over 112 points per 100 possessions, which, according to our friends at ESPN Stats and Information Group, makes it the first playoff matchup since 1974, where both teams averaged that many points per 100 possessions during the regular season. This might be the best offensive matchup in a playoff series in the history of pro basketball. But LeBron. And this is the thing where like, both of these teams have a relatively high uh, kind of Assurance that they are great teams, not good teams, great teams. We've seen, we've seen the Warriors do it and the Warriors seem to be more or less whole. We'll get to a few, um, holes in their, their game this season in a minute. Uh, and the Rockets have, you know, sputtered a little bit in these playoffs, but also they've, they've come through. They've won in five games. And by every metric that we have, they are also a great team. And that is like just the greatness of LeBron right now where, we're relatively certain, a high amount of certainty, you know, given this, uh, this stage of the playoffs about these two teams, about how much better they are than, than the other two teams. And yet I'm just not sure that, <laughs> like, LeBron's not going to come through and, like, average 45 for a series and, like, that might be enough. Like, so. It should be. It should be the de facto finals, but like, I don't know, man. Okay, I'll let you off the hook on that one, uh, and we'll talk about the Cavs in a second when we dissect the East. Uh, but I'm really interested in this matchup uh, just from almost like a stylistic point of view with the Warriors and the Rockets because we, we think of them as being, oh, you know, they shoot a lot of threes. They're these kind of, uh, you know, highly efficient offensive teams, and that's true. But really, if you dig into their metrics, they play very different styles. The Warriors are really a high tempo you know lots of passing lots of movement without the ball the Rockets are really ISO heavy they don't run uh, at as fast a pace as we think and really you know the reputation of Golden State which was built several seasons ago for being you know this pioneering three-point shooting team they've been kind of left behind in the dust by the Rockets uh if you if you look at the numbers the Warriors only ranked 16th in the league in three-pointers attempted per 100 possessions whereas the Rockets Actually, they've not only led the league in that metric, but threes represented more than half of their total shots. Uh, and, and this team has sort of, we've talked about them before, they've made more incremental moves than ever toward maximizing the efficiency in style that a basketball team can possibly have. But how do you see these competing styles kind of playing out head to head when they take the court together? Right. So, I mean, I did a story after last season's finals about the Warriors where just talking about how they they aren't your typical like analytics team, uh, as, as we think of it, like pace and, uh, pace and pick and roll and a lot of threes and whatever. They don't, they take a ton of two pointers. They, they take like, they have a crazy amount of turnovers, which is something that you're supposed to, supposed to minimize. Like they, they don't do the things that are typically associated with, you know, the modern kind of Mori ball, uh, team. They don't even get fouled all that much. Uh, the warrior, uh, the Rockets, on the other hand, obviously do. Um, but but yeah, like this is a thing that where I'm going to take a time out and say it was crazy that we were wondering about the Chris Paul thing because the only di- thing di- differentiating him, the only two things differentiating him from the Rockets were uh, 
the the two pointers, the long the long twos, obviously, and pace. And the Rockets have fallen back in pace this season because Chris's teams like traditionally just haven't run that much. Even with Lob City, where everyone was like all excited, we're going to get in transition, and Chris all of a sudden was just like, "No, man, I'm I'm getting up there." He was like 27, like, "No, man, I'm getting up there. We're we're gonna we're gonna pull this back." Uh, and the Rockets were at like almost last, like close to last in the league in in fast break points this season, which is yeah crazy for a Mori team. Uh, but. Chris's actual overall style is no, I'm just going to pound the ball until something opens up a lot like James Harden. Whereas the Warriors, if you look at just, uh, their, their passes per game, their screen set per game, like their, their pick and roll style, um, like th- this is one of the, the dark humor things in the league that's always funny to look at. Their offense most closely resembles, if you look at just the metrics and not like the, the, the comprising metrics, not the efficiency, it most closely resembles the New York Knicks. <laughs> uh, it looks like if you're just looking at like the things that like you can look at passes, whatever, uh, a team that isn't running a modern NBA style offense, in, which is, it's a hyper modern offense, like it is, uh, like doing all the ball movement, all the player movement, especially. But, but yeah, like they don't, they don't play like each other at all, even though they're, they're both thought of as these futuristic teams. Yeah. What a difference the Warriors talent makes in comparison with some of the other teams that are trying to do the same things. So do you think that, you know, we've had questions about whether or not Houston can sort of win with that particular style, that efficiency maximizing style against a really good defensive team, which the Warriors are. They're actually leading the playoffs in fewest points allowed per 100 possessions so far. Uh, and, and in the past, Houston has run up against the Warriors, who have been a great defensive team, by the way, going back to the beginning of this era uh, under Steve Kerr. Uh, and each of those times, Houston lost to the Warriors in five games. It was in back-to-back playoffs, in fact. One of those was a conference final. Uh, but those series were also different. You mentioned Chris Paul. He had not joined the Rockets yet. The Rockets, I don't think, had perfected their playing style around Harden yet. Harden certainly was not an MVP candidate quite yet, uh, especially in the earlier of those two series. Obviously, the Warriors didn't have Kevin Durant yet. But what are the differences that we can kind of pick out uh, in the past where Houston had not been able to execute this all the way to an NBA Finals that they might be able to this year? All right, so I got one one on each side, one for uh, – it's different because Clint Capella is just better. He's He's improved the entire time he's been in the league. And this season he is – and I mean a lot of that comes from the playing with Chris Paul as well as James Harden – uh, but he is at the level of, or maybe surpassing the level of, just for sure, bounciness and, uh, like vertical kind of spacing, uh, as like the peak DeAndre Jordan, peak whatever, where he, the pressure he puts on a defense, uh, especially a defense that often is trying to go small, is so great that, yeah, like he, he changes an offense. If, Ke- if Kevin Durant's down there trying to play center, if you have Draymond Green down there trying to play center, and Clint Capella is the thing that's pressing them like down toward the rim when they want to like more naturally be a little further up, then yeah, that has a, the potential to, to change the way that, that you have to defend this team. On the other hand, it's still a team where one guy is going to have the ball for most of the possession, and it's not really going to be be moving around all that much. There there aren't really counter mechanisms in place on the backside of the play where you're going to rely on someone, especially when we're talking about Eric Gordon just kind of fallen off in the last several games. Now he hasn't had a like he's had he had one good game in the in the Utah series, one pretty good game, and a bunch of really not good games. And he hadn't been playing good defense either, which is a thing. On the other side, where you really need all your like kind of 
average size switching guys to to be able to to switch around on on the Warriors. But the the really compelling thing is like they don't have another creator once you get away from and and, and again that, that this is a high level problem to have once you get away from James Harden and Chris Paul <laughs> after those two you don't have another creator. But like that's not really what we're talking about. We're we're talking about like within a play within a play you don't have like secondary options where. Uh, you're trusting a guy to get the ball, like swing, swing, and put the ball on the floor, and with three, four seconds left in the shot clock, uh, have a plan built into the play. That isn't really what the Houston offense does, or at least does well. Yeah, and the Warriors' defense is so sort of multidimensional. They're so good at switching, and they're so good at just closing out and, and being long and almost positionless that it does seem to present a, a unique problem for a team like Houston who's predicated around you know kind of making these plays happen off of these one-on-one matchups and then waiting for the defense to break down the Warriors don't really break down that that often which is one of the secrets to their success as much as anything over the years right and I don't have the stats in front of me but uh, the, the Warriors offense on the other hand um, is a thing where they do get late into the shot clock um, a, a lot, and they're relatively or like extremely effective uh, based on you know what other teams do late in the shot clock. Typically, the later you go, especially toward the end, your shots just get bad. The Warriors, on the other hand, just like kind of stay about as good, which is obscene. Yeah, and this is a thing where we talked about uh, a few weeks ago, I think, about how the Houston offense is one of those offenses that feels dangerous in broken plays where the, uh, like you'll just get like a, a deflection or something and all of a sudden like you're if you're a fan of the defense uh, the de- defensive team your heart's like sinking cuz you're like oh man like we did a good defensive thing that is like objectively good like we we disrupted this play and i am sure this means that they are going to you know just hit a hit a three and like whatever in the chaos that ensues Houston's good at that and, like obviously the warriors are good at that but the warriors offense kind of extending that and also like thriving in the chaos of late shot clock stuff is like on another level from from the Houston offense. Now, are there any cracks in the armor for the Warriors? Uh, once Steph Curry came back, the the team certainly put away the Pelicans. Curry himself uh, played a little bit of a lower level than he had been playing during the regular season, uh, and that fits in with basically the pattern that we saw from him during the 2016 playoffs where he needs a little time to kind of get rolling, and he was never fully right during those playoffs. Uh, and, and the team really only outscored uh, the Pelicans by 5.3 points per 100 possessions during the last last four games of that uh, series, even though they won three of the four games that Curry was back. Uh, but are we, are we nitpicking and looking for, for reasons to doubt the Warriors, or is there a reason to kind of uh, pick at them and think that they might not be uh, at quite as high a level as they have been over the past three seasons? Oh, no, no, no. We're nitpicking at this point. So the, so the big thing— I figured we were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, the, the big thing that we were worried about, like, obviously, the, the Curry issues aside— uh, was whether they just didn't have enough three-point shooters uh, to to command the respect that they have in the past because Andre Iguodala and Draymond Green have spent most of the season just not hitting their shots. Draymond, though, in this series hit 40%. He, so, I mean, that's that can come and go. He was one for five in the last game. Uh, Iguodala was, I think, 30, 33%. Uh, so not great, but, you know, not like 20%, uh, just like leave him alone like Andre Robertson. And... At that point, yeah, they they have they're basically whole once once Curry's back, and Curry doesn't need to be you know lighting you up for forty nine points. Although like he has done that this season, uh, and like he came back and he scored what like twenty nine points in twenty eight minutes or whatever something like that. And 
and like more importantly, the entire team shot better once he came back, which is the like kind of the fundamental thing that we've talked about where uh, when it's just not the same when it's just Durant. Like he has an effect on everyone else's gravity where just everyone else has more space. Everyone else is getting the ball in better rhythm in more space because Curry's on the floor and he alters the dimensions. And, and to be fair, it doesn't slog down the offense the way Durant does either. Okay, Kyle. So the moment of truth has arrived. What are our picks for this series? Is this finally the year Houston breaks through or is it more of the same for the Warriors? I spent all season thinking that you know the the Warriors have been banged up all season and being like oh, it is it is indisputable that that Houston is a is a great team um, and that is you know uh, at at the very least a conference championship team uh, but likely this is like the traditionally this is this is the profile of of a finals team and now we've gotten to it and I'm I'm a coward like it, it is just it is hard to pick against the Warriors like I'm I'm like I think the Warriors are an obvious favorite I, I don't think it's a it's a huge uh margin but but yeah i think i think it's the warriors easily yeah uh we should say even though our carmelo system has the rockets as heavy favorites with a 79 percent chance of making the nba finals that's uh that seems a little bit out on a limb we know all of the reasons why carmelo sort of takes that view vegas of course still has the warriors as relatively comfortable favorites to not just win this series but to win the championship uh and yeah it's it's the the only thing that really causes me to hesitate to think about picking the warriors here is that that game seven will be in houston uh if it does go that deep and all indications do point to this being a long series obviously we've said that about other series that ended up unexpectedly being short uh during these playoffs but yeah it's it goes back to something i think of our um our old colleague ben morris wrote about championship teams with championship pedigree win more than you would expect based on any of their sort of regular season metrics, even their playoff metrics, uh, there, there seems to be some kind of ineffable quality to a championship level team, the, in the NBA at least, that builds in an extra layer of security, uh, compared with teams that don't have that pedigree. And this is sort of the classic test case for that. You have one team that is equal to, if not superior to, the Warriors on paper, given all of the metrics that we have. The one thing that is separating the two is that championship pedigree and there's a reason in the nba why we see so many teams repeat as champions or build dynasties or even quasi dynasties uh, and and it might have a lot to do with that sort of intangible uh, quality that the metrics can't pick up on uh during the regular season until you get into the crucible of the playoffs yeah one of the most interesting things about that piece and it was two seasons ago is when uh the the Spurs were keeping pace with the 73 win uh, uh, Warriors uh, right before the Warriors lost to uh, the Cavs, uh, unfortunately, uh, for for the piece's timing. But uh, one of the more interesting things in that was that it's true of series even more than it is of games. So uh, on a game-by-game basis, you would expect uh, championship-level teams. And I think the metric was teams that have won a championship in the previous four seasons or something like that. And they win games more often than you would spe- expect based on their regular season point differential, uh, which is, you know, surprising, but not that surprising. 
What was surprising was that within that, so winning a playoff game essentially is is a different skill than winning a regular season game because you're trying the entire time. It's 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 you know difficult. Like you're not going to just uh, put in the put in the bench with you know five minutes left and say oh we'll get them next time. Like you're, there are back to back things, of course. Uh, but then once you get into the the series level, those teams also win series at an even greater uh, way, uh, at an even greater rate than. Uh, the rate of those uh, individual playoff game wins, which tells you that like there's a there's a skill inherent to winning a series, which is uh, something that like traditionally like is the cliche we talk about like being able to close out a team or whatever. No, 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 no. Like that is like actually a skill based that we can like show you. Yeah, it suggests that they kind of clamp down in the games that that matter the most, uh, even within the playoffs. Uh, so it sounds like we are taking the easy way out in some ways and picking the Warriors, but it is tough. Yeah, I mean, so if, if you're going to go on the Houston side, I think it's uh, like, obviously, you have to believe that Capella is going to cause real problems for that team on offense and defense, especially when they go to the, the Hamptons five, the death lineup, whatever, uh, the small lineups for, for Golden State that having Capella on the floor is going to cause like real material like problems for them. And also that Harden and Paul are going to beat their beat their one-on-ones that like this is a team that's going to switch a lot they're not going to send a ton of doubles for the most part and they just have to make that work against whatever defender uh, they have in their chest and the Warriors have a lot of defenders okay let's leave the Western Conference Finals they're really excited about that series but let's move on to talk about the Boston Celtics and the Cleveland Cavaliers this one will actually tip off before the West uh, it'll start on Sunday afternoon and I think it's fair to say this is not exactly the matchup we were expecting to get here uh, when we were kind of projecting forward from the second round onward and it's kind of funny because in some ways, why wouldn't you expect this? This is a rematch of the Eastern Conference Final uh, from last year. But uh, suffice to say, a lot has happened since then uh, involving both of these teams. And a lot of the key players from last year's matchup are no longer in the picture for both teams. Uh, so let's talk about just the the shape of this series. Uh, we had talked about... 3-2-1. A couple weeks ago, we predicted Cleveland would lose. We also predicted Boston would lose in the second round, each one pretty decisively. Uh, and did we learn something in those upsets? I don't know if you want to call them upsets. By Certainly by the prism of the past playoffs, Cleveland beating Toronto was not an upset. But unexpected second round wins. What did we learn about each of these teams while watching those series play out? So we've learned different things about the two teams. One for for Cleveland, I mean, we just came off talking about the the championship teams. You know, have have different skill sets for winning playoff series, and obviously this Cleveland team has very different circumstances than your standard uh, championship team. It's lost second best player. It um you know has you know the supporting cast has changed over a lot, but the style, the the core fundamental style is intact and it's more intact in the playoffs as we've seen than it has been for most of the regular season and this is what we talk about or what i talk about when we talk about like playoff experience is just kind of stress testing making sure that like your system uh and the, the things you've built into it is good enough that the, that there aren't things that you can throw in to complicate it that are just going to lead to an inevitable series loss and the lebron ball system of LeBron James has the ball. He's going to shoot, you know, walk into walk into threes. He's going to 
uh, well, now he's going to like jump eight feet back sideways across the court and like hit a hundred percent of his fadeaway jump shots. And he's going to barrel into the rim and find open shooters, um, and just kind of grind through pick and rolls and force guys, like literally just force guys to be open. Uh, that has proven to be good enough. And on the other side, like we've learned about Boston, oh, all these young players that we had a bunch of questions about all throughout the year have developed at such a rapid pace where Jalen Brown looked really bad early in the season. Uh, no, he looked good all season, but he looked really bad while he's driving to the to the basket while he was uh, just kind of trying to make it happen on his own. Now, like, he's just cutting through the rim, just trying to dunk on, like, Embiid at the end of that game. And it's like, oh, like, this is actual in-season progression of a type that we don't often see. Jason Tatum is a sophisticated player now. He's not just polished, like, coming out of whatever. Like, he is he's making decisions in the middle of possessions on offense and defense uh, that are, like, kind of veteran player uh, developments. And Rogier, who, like, you know, I was uh, colder on uh, earlier this season, like, toward the end of the season, where he was, like, he was obviously a promising player, but, like, his personal offense just was still relatively inefficient from, from game to game, has just pulled it all together, and now all of his shots are falling. And, like, this small sample size, sure, like, you don't want to just say, oh, he's arrived, but uh, playoff development uh, over the course of several series, multiple series, tends to stick when it's, instead of it's not just you know one like a, one or two games in the playoffs in a way that like no 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 he's he's showing like actual decision making and like being able to run an offense in like kind of difficult uh difficult circumstances where this seems to be something you can trust and obviously Marcus Smart Marcus Smart is back and um ruining plays and just stonewalling Joel Embiid, Joel Embiid in in the post, uh, whatever. And just, he, Marcus is ridiculous. He's he's a delight to watch, and uh, like has like all the scrap or whatever that like like in a TJ McConnell or whatever. No, no, no. Like Marcus, like just guards every position on the floor. Right. Uh, yeah, I want to talk about LeBron in a second, but uh, all all of the things that you mentioned with the Celtics also seem to dovetail with this growing narrative, which I think the numbers back up, uh, as well as the eye test, that Brad Stevens is one of the best coaches now you know uh, we knew that he was already one of the best coaches but he seems to have taken the the ability to not just on an x's and o's level which he's also doing on some of those late game plays uh, you know inbound plays uh, that basically helped seal the uh, some wins for them but also you know this idea that a great coach is able to coax whether it's through finding the right fit, finding, you know, uh, just motivation, uh, being able to coax the best performances out of his talent. And this was, this is building to be Brad Stevens sort of magnum opus, you know, of, of his early career as an NBA coach. Even though he got zero votes for coach of the year, uh, this team is playing at a level that if you just look at the roster, you would not expect them to be able to play. And it seems like Stevens has a lot to do with that. Right, it seems like Stevens has totally skipped the the portion of his career where he gets the, he actually gets the award because typically there's the always oh, the young coach like he's doing interesting things oh he's having like an overachieving season let's like give them the the award because like the surprise is what usually wins that award right and then like Greg Popovich never gets voted in like like you get to the level where just oh he's he's the best coach like we don't have to give him the award even though he's the best yeah it's like the assumed you know it goes without saying we we don't need to give credit for it but like. For what he's actually done this season is remarkable because we talked and we talked about this a little bit last uh, last series, but these are very young players. Like 
Jalen Brown is a second-year player. Terry Rozier is a third-year player, but third-year point guard, which is uh, kind of a, a longer learning curve, typically. Without much experience uh, before this stretch, also. Right. And, and Jason Tatum is a first-year player. And so this is always like what the what you want from a from a team of like you're if you really want to see how like how good the coach is whatever like take away their best players see what they do like and just give them a throwaway season and no we've taken away Kyrie Irving like Al Horford's probably the best play, actual player but you've taken away Kyrie Irving you've taken away Marcus Smart for like large stretches and taken away Gordon Hayward for all but like seven eight minutes of of the season and yeah they're in the conference finals and like they have they have a shot. Okay, let's let's talk about Cleveland because yeah, you mentioned LeBron, who just seems to to have found a new level. We talked about Brad Stevens doing that. LeBron also has done that. This seems to be the best that LeBron has ever played. Uh, if, for instance, if you look at his box plus minus, it's sixteen point two. So uh, in these playoffs so far, which is better than any regular season he's ever had. And it's second among playoff runs only to the mark that he put up during the Cavs' ill-fated 2009 playoff run in which they lost to the Orlando Magic. But that was far from LeBron's fault. I think he averaged near about 40 points per game during that series uh, on, on efficient shooting as well. Uh, and, and nobody else could buy a shot. Uh, but this seems to be it's, – it's highly – impressive and improbable that LeBron at his current age could sort of channel the LeBron of almost a decade ago and continue to to improve uh, even during the course of a season. This, uh, it, uh, there aren't enough superlatives left to say about LeBron, uh, and, and that's a really incredible thing to be able to say about a player who already, even before this season and certainly before this postseason, had built a resume that could stand toe-to-toe with just about anybody in the history of the game. Yeah, I mean, that that team was obviously very different, too. It, was, it wasn't, it was like, as as kind of a finished product of, like, understanding what you need a LeBron, LeBron. And for a lot of the season, it looked like this roster wasn't either, but that 0809 roster was uh, was a piece of work. It had Delonte West as, I think, their second-leading scorer. Mo, it might have been Mo Williams. Uh, Zerunda Sigalskis was still there. Uh, Joe Smith, Ben Wallace played playoff minutes for that team. Um, so, yeah, it was... And like, and you can look at this roster and be like, Jose Calderon's still playing for this team, right? Uh, Is he the Mo Williams or yeah, yeah, like the the Booby Gibson, right? And but but yeah, this is a team that uh, that we had a bunch of questions about. Obviously, uh, Kevin Love has obviously played better in the last few games, even though he had a really disappointing game one. Uh, yeah, they swept the, they swept the series. Like it's they're they're more than good enough uh, to at least get out of the East at this point. Uh, but the things that are working for them are also there. To, to be fair, there, there are things that have been working all season. Like Kevin Love was in and out of the lineup; he missed a lot of time. But the the small lineups with Kevin Love, uh, even going back to when Dwayne Wade was on this team, remember that? Like this has been a very long season. Um, Lots of twists and turns. But yeah, going back to when Dwayne was um, out there, when when Love was out for extended periods, um, and Shining Fry was the small, but like the small ball lineups have been effective for this team all season, whether it's Calderon playing the point or Hill or whomever. Uh, if you have a point guard who can shoot out there and a small ball uh, center who can shoot, this team just has worked all season. For large stretches, they haven't had that available to them, 
but but yeah, like it's this isn't a new thing. The things that are working, at least. Yeah, although I do think it's interesting. There was a story by Owen Phillips that we ran at five thirty eight this week uh, about how Cleveland's top five man unit in the playoffs. So that's LeBron, Love, George Hill, J.R. Smith, and Kyle Korver had logged exactly zero minutes together during the regular season, and their second most common lineup, uh, which I think slots out George Hill and puts in Calderon also had played zero minutes together during the regular season. If you look at the uh, most used lineups for all of the other teams that have gone this far in the playoffs, aside from the Warriors who were dealing with Steph Curry uh, being injured, those te- uh, those lineups had played together all year long, and we had kind of gotten a sense of what to expect out of those lineups. The Cavs, maybe one explanation for how they were able to kind of turn things around uh, against Toronto after looking so you know, out of sorts against Indiana after looking so out of sorts for practically the whole regular season was this notion that they are still sort of finding the right pieces uh, on the fly and sort of refining the formula. And also it does help to have LeBron playing at his highest ever level. Right. I mean, there are obviously, you know, other things, you know, at work. JR has uh, woken up after, you know, a long dormancy. All of their um, shooters did, I think, for the most part against Toronto, which was one of the things that was missing in the first round. Uh, it was. And the other thing is obviously Kevin Love, who um, after game one, where I think it was two for 13, uh, he woke up and had like a very good, you know, three games. But it was a very good three games where he was doing things that – uh, frankly, he hadn't been doing most of the season where he was, you know, racing down and like sealing, uh, sealing in the post, um, in transition and just, you know, getting the, uh, getting passed from LeBron. He was, uh, pump faking and putting the ball on the, on the floor and like going in and like, like taking a contested shot and making it. These are things that like we hadn't seen him doing as much. We'd see him do here and there, but like he took it, um, he took it upon himself in, in those final three games to, you know, actually, uh, create, create offense for himself in a way that, isn't always easy when you know LeBron is you know hogging the ball, uh, but that's a thing that like these LeBron teams need. This is a thing that like we thought Rodney Hood might be doing when he came over hasn't really been the case. Uh, but that traditionally has been the case that uh, the LeBron offense has needed someone to just kind of take the ball aside and just say like I- I'm gonna I'm gonna create a shot here and it's going to be a relatively uh, high percentage one. Okay, so let's talk about the big picture of this series. What do we make of of this matchup? Uh, what what would you pick? I, I almost hesitated to say, you know, what are our picks in the normal sense because we've been so wrong about both of these teams, and also they do seem like such still unknown quantities. Uh, but who who do you think will win, Kyle? And and in how many games? Cavs and six, uh, I think, is the easy answer. Um, I don't know, like it's it's easy to see either way, and like obviously, like we're not you know picking for any kind of stakes here, but like the the argument against would be that just they're too young and too fast and too good the Celtics for for the Cavs, and that while you know George Hill and Kyle Korver and Kevin Love have you know risen up in this past series um, against. Uh, kind of lesser Toronto team that Marcus Smart, Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, <laughs> Al Horford, and Terry Rozier are just going to run them out. They're just going to run them off the floor. And 
not necessarily even just in transition, but just run, just keeping pace. Like the the Philly shooters were just harassed that entire series, and LeBron's shooters are like obviously the key to making that LeBron offense go. LeBron himself, of course, is you know the main thing, but. If it's just LeBron going off and those shooters are dormant in the way that, like, they were in the Pacers series, uh, then that's a problem. And we just saw the Celtics put the Sixers shooters in positions where they weren't as free, they weren't as open um, as they had been in the previous series, and it looked a lot different. So if it goes the Celtics' way, that appears to be the blueprint. Yeah, and we should say that in a rare moment of agreement between the Vegas odds and our Carmelo model, both have the Cavs winning. Vegas obviously has the Cavs being a a lot heavier favorites, but it does seem like if the Cavs win, you know, Cavs in six makes sense given the structure of the games because Boston does have home court uh, in this uh, as as difficult as it is to remember all of the seedings now that the number one seed is out and the Cavs are, are coming on strong again. Uh, but yeah, well, I, th- I think you have to have the Cavs as favorites. But we've seen from the Celtics team, they, they uh, have been able to overcome the odds from, like you said, seven minutes into the season when Gordon Hayward went down. So it would be an, uh, a case of them still doing that even to the to the end of the postseason if they were able to pull off this upset. Uh, but for now, that'll do it for this week's show. Our podcast producers this week are Tony Chow, brand new dad, and Nina Ernest. Our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. You can keep sending us your questions and comments at podcast at 538.com. Whatever your favorite podcasting app is, we are also there, whether it's the Listen tab of the ESPN app or on Apple Podcasts, where you can subscribe at iTunes.com slash 538. Be sure to review and rate the show wherever you find it. It helps others discover the program. For Chris and Kyle, I'm Neil. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.